This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the Anchoring Truths podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're pleased to be discussing an old book, but in a new light, The Conservative Affirmation by Wilmore Kendall. Maverick political scientist Wilmore Kendall predicted the triumph of conservatism. Upon the 1963 publication of Kendall's The Conservative Affirmation, his former Yale student William F. Buckley Jr. called Kendall one of the most superb and original political analysts of the 20th century. In the 60s, Kendall stood apart from the mainstream conservative movement, which he accused of being anti-populist and of storming American public opinion from without by wrongly assuming that the American people were essentially corrupt and always ready to sell their votes to the highest bidder. As we experience another turn towards populism in American conservatism, we're pleased to have Dan McCarthy on to join us. Dan has written a new foreword to Regnery's re-release of the conservative affirmation. Dan is the vice president for the Collegiate Network at the Intercollegiate Studies Institute and editor of ISI's journal Modern Age. And I can't think of anybody better to be discussing the conservative affirmation with than Dan. Also joining us on the podcast is our intern, Jacob Shields. We hope you enjoy the program. So what led you to write the foreword for the conservative affirmation? Back in 2008, I was asked to do an extensive essay on Wilmore Kendall as part of a book called The Dilemmas of American Conservatism. And at that time, I didn't really know all that much about Kendall. I'd read The Conservative Affirmation, I'd read a few of his essays here and there, but I hadn't really formed a complete idea of the thinker. And uh, so going through all of Kendall's work uh, in 2008 in preparation for that essay really taught me to appreciate Kendall in a much more thoroughgoing way. And so when Regnery was interested in issuing a new edition of the Conservative Affirmation, uh, I was someone whose work they had seen uh, in general in many places, but also in particular, I think they'd seen my essay in the uh, Dilemmas of American Conservatism, and they asked me to do the, uh, the foreword. And, uh, you know, Kendall was uh, someone who changed my way of thinking in many respects. Um, he really showed me the um, ways in which you can take a philosophical program and a very well-stated position, as Kendall lays out in, in his, his many books, um, and treat it as a living thing, treat it as a dynamic thing that has to be placed into conversation and context with what's going on in the world around us. Uh, before then, I think I'd had a more historical approach to a lot of political thought. Uh, not that it, I saw it in a purely, you know, sort of relativistic way before, but it used to be that, uh, you know, I treated things far more uh, contextually dependent than I did after reading Wilmore Kendall. And with Wilmore Kendall, I came to see, wait a minute, um, if there are certain truths that Kendall has observed about the way in which uh, human nature is operating in politics, then these truths are going to apply even in quite uh, radically different circumstances. And then the task of bringing together an analysis of the circumstances with an analysis of the underlying political truths and forces is going to be uh, the task of, uh, first of all, the student and the scholar, but second of all, uh, and perhaps more importantly, the statesman. Kendall was one of the most prominent conservative philosophers of the 20th century. That much is clear from reading uh, your, your foreword, uh, but he isn't discussed very often today. Can you give our listeners an overview of who Kendall was in addition to 
the era in which he lived. Yeah, he had a very uh, interesting life, uh, perhaps uh, excessively interesting. And uh, as a result, uh, if one gets too much into his biography, it can tend to overshadow uh, the discussion of his work, just because there's so many different uh, sort of fascinating elements to uh, zoom in on. So Wilmore Kendall was born in 1909 in small town Oklahoma. And of course, Oklahoma at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, in some respects, it is still the Wild West. Uh, and certainly small town Oklahoma and even you know, places like Oklahoma City, uh, these were communities that were still being built and developed. Uh, they still had very much the same kind of frontier sensibility that America had had uh, in, in its origins. And I think that helped to connect Kendall in the long run with his appreciation for uh, the federalist system, for the idea of a strong sense of local self-government, uh, and the idea that local self-government is in fact very much uh, connected with the idea of natural right and the idea of uh, transcendent truth, because the local community should ideally uh, have within itself that appreciation, not necessarily in a very sophisticated way, but you'll have enough of that sensibility at the local level that then as you filter things up through the federalist system, through having, uh, you know, sort of deliberative uh, elections of the best people to be representatives to Washington, uh, then within Congress you should have a deliberative discussion among uh, representatives. And in this way, James Madison imagined you would filter up and actually get, you know, statesmen who were much more concerned directly about natural right and its more articulated forms having dis discussions at the, the federal level, whereas at the local level they just had to have kind of the right sensibility in order to create that filter. Um, with Kendall, it's always easy to get you know, directly from the life into the philosophy, but I'll, I'll fill in a few other points about his life. Um, like many young men of the early 20th century, he went through a phase where he was interested in socialism. And he never seems to have become a member of any branch of communism, for example, but he certainly was uh, during uh, years when he was studying at Oxford University, and then subsequently uh, for a time when he worked as a reporter in uh, Spain before the Spanish Civil War. Uh, there was a period where Kendall was certainly associated with a number of people who were on the socialist, uh, you know, sort of hard left. Uh, but what happened is that as, you know, many people uh, of that era who were uh, involved with uh, socialism uh, discovered, Kendall, too, saw that uh, many of his friends on the left, uh, who were non-Stalinist leftists of various kinds, socialists or Trotskyist communists, uh, in Spain, they wound up, uh, you know, n not just having to fear for their lives in the civil war with the nationalists, but also, and even more so, having to fear for their lives from the Stalinists. And so that uh, was one of the uh, experiences that made Kendall uh, start to become not just a anti-communist, but someone who really viscerally understood the existential life and death combat uh, that was involved in uh, the questions of Stalinist power and overall of, uh, of communism. So uh, Kendall, uh, after World War II, he does some consulting work for uh, the OSS, for the CIA. He has an intelligence background. He works for the government briefly. And then he goes to Yale University, and he actually becomes a professor of politics at Yale. And even at the time, Kendall was a little bit idiosyncratic for Yale. And over the course of the next decade, as we get into the 1950s, Kendall's conservatism really comes through. And Kendall, uh, you know, because he is so alive to the problem of and the threat of communism and of communist infiltration, Kendall becomes a strong supporter of Senator Joseph McCarthy. And as you can imagine, uh, even in the 1950s, that was not seen as an acceptable position at Yale University. So Kendall becomes a pariah within his own department. And, uh, you know, they can't fire him because he has tenure, but he is treated, uh, you know, with uh, the coldest of shoulders. Now, uh, Kendall does, however, find appreciative students at Yale University. He is a very effective professor, very effective teacher. And among his students are William F. Buckley Jr. Mm -hmm. and Brent Bozell uh, Jr. 
Uh, William F. Buckley, of course, goes on to found National Review. And even though um, you know, Wilmore Kendall is today not very well known, in fact, Kendall's influence, I think, can be seen quite clearly in a lot of William F. Buckley's work, especially uh, Buckley's early work in God and Man at Yale and in his second book, McCarthy and His Enemies. And there's a famous line of uh, Bill Buckley's from his early days where he says that he would rather be governed, uh, I think it's by the first, you know, hundred names in the phone, in the, uh, uh, you know, Boston phone book than by the faculty of Harvard University. Uh, that kind of comment is very much in the spirit of Wilmore Kendall. Right. And uh, one of the things I, I think I point out in my, uh, my introduction to uh, the conservative affirmation is that prior to this, Buckley's formation was mostly coming from what we would consider a, a kind of um, stereotypically elite conservative point of view. So uh, Buckley had been very influenced by Albert J. Nock, who was a kind of uh, uh, individualist, elitist uh, libertarian. And uh, Buckley also you know, had a father who was an oilman who was very much uh, you know, critical of uh, democracy. And so Buckley might have been uh, you know, formed in a way that would have put him out of sync with the American sensibility and with uh, you know, the founding fathers and the Constitution and so forth, or, or at least would have put him very much on the side of things which says that the founding fathers were totally against, uh, wanted to really constrain popular self-government in an extremely harsh way. And I think Kendall was able to reshape uh, Buckley's thinking to show actually there is a way to reconcile uh, the uh, proper form of elitism with uh, actual popular self-government and with an appreciation for, uh, you know, American, uh, well, the American system as expressed in the Constitution and in the Federalist. So Kendall um, is one of the first editors that Bill Buckley recruits uh, as a contributor to National Review when National Review, Review gets started in the 1950s. Um, Kendall, however, uh, continues to be a very polarizing figure at Yale, and he also um, has many personal difficulties, uh, including uh, a rather lifelong alcohol addiction, which lead to difficulties with his friends, including with Bill Buckley. Um, his position at Yale becomes so uh, difficult that uh, Yale University ultimately decides to buy out Kendall's tenure. They offer him a pile of money to simply resign and go away. And he does? He does. He accepts that. Uh, and then he becomes something of an itinerant professor for several years. Uh, ultimately, and I think thankfully, he winds up uh, joining the relatively recently founded University of Dallas uh, towards the end of his life in the 1960s. But uh, he also uh, you know, has a, a uh, you know, sort of rupture in his friendship with uh, William F. Buckley Jr. And so these elements, uh, this sort of itinerant existence as an academic, uh, you know, in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s, and then uh, his breakdown of his friendship with Buckley and, and others, uh, these lead to a dilution or a, a sort of um, a diversion of uh, Kendall's legacy. So instead of having a very clear, you know, sort of set of graduate students and a line of succession and so forth, uh, instead Kendall becomes almost an isolated figure. I think he still has a great deal of influence on uh, the way in which conservatism develops, but it's often behind the scenes through uh, his influence on Buckley, through some of the conversations that he starts with people like uh, James Burnham, another uh, you know, great uh, academic who is a uh, contributor to National Review. And also uh, Kendall works closely with people like uh, George Carey, who was a professor at Georgetown University for a very long time and is a, was a stalwart of uh, conservatism from its founding days through to the early 2000s. So you're, you're painting something like a a tragic figure or maybe just a, a, a figure who, who wasn't as appreciated in his own day uh, as, as probably he should have been. Um, and yet you also describe him as the philosopher of right-wing populism, which appears to be on the rise now. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, speaking to Kendall as a tragic figure, you know, he is the, uh, 
considered to be the subject of a Saul Bellow short story called uh, Mosby's Memoir. And uh, Kendall was someone who just made a tremendous impression as a, a sort of genius, but also a very tragically flawed genius uh, on many people that he met, including, uh, you know, Bellow. Um, I say that he is the philosopher of American right-wing populism uh, because we often hear the claim made that populism is just a kind of angry emotional reaction, that it is not something that is to be taken intellectually seriously, and that in fact populism may boil down to mere animus against uh, you know, elites. And uh, Kendall is someone who has very strong credentials as a political thinker, as a, uh, as a scholar. And in this book, The Conservative Affirmation, he makes the case that, in fact, uh, American local self-government and a, uh, uh, a, a American conservatism that is based not necessarily in the head, but in the very hips of Americans and the very way they move and walk. I like that. That this is, uh, this is our conservatism. And so, uh, you know, he, I think, makes a case that's very sophisticated. It goes into, you know, the Federalist. It goes into questions of public orthodoxy, questions of the status of things like free speech. Um, all of these sophisticated concerns of political science are to be found in Wilmore Kendall's The Conservative Affirmation. Uh, but he, he always has the sense that what he's doing is championing the ordinary man and championing the, you know, sort of uh, system of local self-government that our country was built upon. So in that sense, I think he really is the philosopher and the, fact, the person who systematizes and adds great depth to the impulses of populism, the, you know, sort of uh, intuitions of populism. You know, it's funny, uh, our founder and director, Hadley Arcus, will often invoke Jefferson's uh, phrase, you give the same problem to a plowman and a professor, and the plowman is more likely to give you a coherent distillation of that problem uh, because the professor is going to be hung up on abstract you know, theories. What is it perhaps that you can cast as a thread line from, from Jefferson to um, uh, Kendall in terms of uh, maybe viewing there to be a, a natural virtue in uh, the common man? Well, uh, so in the conservative affirmation, Kendall defines conservatism as being the rejection of what he calls the liberal revolution. The liberal revolution ultimately turns out to be a kind of uh, nihilistic Machiavellian revolution in values. It is the abandonment of the idea that there is any kind of transcendent truth, and instead uh, the substitution for a transcendent truth uh, you know, uh, you substitute for that truth uh, a uh, you know sort of scientific you know, uh, expert uh, rule, which is ultimately utilitarian, and behind the utilitarianism is ultimately nothing at all except power. Um, so Kendall had that fundamental understanding, and he saw this uh, cult of power and this system of power that uh, political scientists of uh, the you know, middle of the 20th century and politicians of the middle of the 20th century, journalists and others, uh, this cult of power was uh, basically something that was being imposed upon Americans from the top down. Whereas the Americans themselves, in their own local communities, uh, they had to have a sense of virtue, first of all, because they had to build those communities. They were up against a very difficult uh, situation. And, you know, it's not just a matter of the force of necessity in material ways, where, you know, if you want to have a barn raising, for example, you need to call upon your neighbors. But obviously, in order to be able to call upon your neighbors, you need to have neighborliness. And you need to have a sense of uh, what it means to be a community under a transcendent order. And uh, so this um, way in which the connection between the transcendent and uh, the uh, you know, earthly 
is brought about in local communities in America through our own tradition and experience is something that Kendall carried with him and recognized as being antithetical to being the real, you know, healthy alternative to this system of nihilistic utilitarian power that uh, uh, progressives and, and leftists and liberals were trying to, uh, you know, impose upon America. And so when, when Kendall talks about the liberal revolution, he really does mean that word revolution in a literal way, not in a, 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 not a sense of a, you know, sort of violent revolution, but a, a revolution that is replacing one set of transcendent commitments with basically a set of commitment to no transcendence whatsoever. And uh, that is, you know, sort of fleshed out with, again, uh, you know, the way in which political science was operating, with the way in which, uh, you know, politicians would invoke at the national level, you know, especially when running for president, very vague notions of uh, values, which are perfectly illustrated, I think, by Barack Obama in his 2008 campaign, where he campaigns on hope and change. Well, what does that mean? Nobody knows, but it sounds good, so they elect Barack Obama, and then it turns out what it actually means is the federal government's going to tell you that, uh, you know, uh, you must bake cakes, and, you know, you, if you're, uh, you know, a religious uh, institution, if you're a convent, you have to supply birth control pills to, you know, uh, to the nuns. I mean, just absolutely crazy. Uh, but they're able to get away with this because they use this vagueness of hope and change uh, to do it. So I think Kendall was, uh, even though he was writing in the 1960s, he was someone who saw all of this, not just over the horizon, but he saw the very small beginnings of it that had already, you know, become rooted in, uh, the, uh, in the corrupt, you know, 1960s, and then recognized this was going to become a much worse problem over the decades. So Wilmore Kendall built his philosophy off of a very democratic view of America. Can you explain his view of democracy and of majority rule? Yeah, there is this tendency um, for people to think of conservatives as inherently anti-democratic. And there's also a tendency uh, to think of our founding fathers as anti-democratic above all. And Kendall tries to correct both of those views. So democracy obviously has many, many flaws. The Founding Fathers, of course, were mostly concerned about the kind of direct democracy that had existed in uh, the classical polis. Uh, Wilmore Kendall um, takes his bearings from the Federalist and from James Madison and from you know, a handful of other Founding Fathers. And he says, wait a minute, what they're actually talking about is a system of popular rule. It is popular self-government. The entire, there's, there's no hereditary principle in, you know, uh, the American form of government. It really does fundamentally, operationally, all come down to the people. So, uh, you know, the, the Congress may represent the, you know, more, sort of most direct expression of the popular will, but ultimately senators, even when they were picked by state legislatures, uh, the state legislatures themselves were then, you know, elected by the people at some level. Uh, the Electoral College, it's a filter, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, the results that we see happening uh, in the states where people are voting, uh, those are what affect what the state governments do, which then affect the electors and so forth. So the whole system, even up, all the way up to the Supreme Court, where the justices are appointed by the president and uh, confirmed by the Senate, uh, the president and the Senate themselves ultimately, you know, further down the filter, uh, wind up having, uh, you know, a popular basis. But that filtration system is actually very important. And that's one of the things that Kendall emphasizes, is that when James Madison and other founding fathers, when the Federalist, when they talk about, when they want to create a form of popular self-rule, they want to do it in a way that is filtered and that brings out the best, first of all, in the public, and then once you've brought out the best in the public, you can then also bring out the best in the representatives. And that's how you're going to rise from, you know, the level of people who have uh, wise concerns in the local level 
through to statesmen who should be making the right kinds of decisions all the way at the national level. And uh, one of the phrases that I think Wilmore Kendall coins is constitutional morality. Mm. And what that means is there's a certain way in which uh, not only are representatives meant to, rep uh, to relate to their local communities, but there's a, you know, a responsibility to deliberate, to have really serious discussions uh, you know, at the federal level, but also at the local level when you're first um, uh, selecting uh, representatives to really you know, come together as a community and deliberate. And basically what he describes is you know, an attempt to at least reach some kind of uh, almost super majoritarian position or a majoritarian position where you're nonetheless incorporating enough of what is of concern to the minority uh, that you're not going to have a, a kind of embittered remnant that wants to break away or sabotage uh, the decisions of the majority. So Kendall believes that you can get to sound decisions coming out of this process uh, not through direct majoritarianism, and certainly not through what uh, Kendall calls the plebiscitary process, which is just a, you know, a mass, uh, you know, sort of uh, everyone votes for some particular position or some particular item, and uh, you know, you, you know, basically you try to make it like ancient Athenian democracy, and it's almost direct democracy. Um, Kendall didn't like that, but he did think that the popular element of uh, the constitutional order created by the Founding Fathers and explained by the Federalist was something that we need to connect with very well. And he was concerned about, even in the 1950s, you had um, <clears throat> conservatives who tended to look askance at this tradition and askance at this form of government and who, you know, tended to idolize uh, European, uh, you know, sort of monarchy and, and traditions. And Kendall would have said, well, you know, some of that might be justified uh, up to a point and as a kind of literary sensibility. But you should really appreciate that what America has achieved was a, was a conservative achievement, was being able to have a form of self-government among the people that was actually quite solid and that produced uh, you know, generally just results. You write in the foreword that Kendall worried that abstract notions of equality could be used to overrule representative government, creating a tyranny in the place of popular self-rule. Do you agree that we should be suspicious of abstract first principles that don't have public support that, that would then override popular, um, uh, popular notions of um, legitimacy. So Kendall wrote a very controversial review of Harry Jaffa's book, The Crisis of the House Divided. And uh, this book review actually appears in the conservative affirmation. Yes. So people who are curious about it. Yeah, we uh, read that, that, that one with great interest. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone does. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, not only is it you know, interesting in its own right, but it, it becomes the basis for a decades-long you know, sort of clash among conservatives about the place of Abraham Lincoln and about this question of equality within uh, conservatism. And uh, you know, I think one thing that we should do is to relate Kendall's concern here to his understanding of, again, what he calls the liberal revolution and the contrast between a, a kind of centralized uh, system that is using very vague ideas to you know, sort of bamboozle the public. Uh, again, hope and change being the great example of that. Uh, that on the one hand versus uh, the more localized kind of um, uh, community rule, which tends to be also more concretized because they're concerned about local issues. Um, so uh, Kendall sees Lincoln as the beginning of this tendency, which leads you know, basically now all the way to Obama and beyond. And um, Kendall is concerned about the way, first of all, the scope and the scale at which you know, presidents are able to make pronouncements. And second, that uh, you know, when you're dealing with these first principles, they are so powerful that they really can short circuit uh, you know, kind of local uh, considerations. Um, I think Kendall uh, maybe goes a little too far. Um, you know, I have, you know, it, 
there's a truth to what Kendall's saying, uh, and again, I would point to you know Obama's hope and change is a great example of how this can be abused. But at the same time, Kendall also recognizes that what he's fighting against is fundamentally this evacuation of natural right and of truth from the public sphere. And so inevitably, a statesman's going to have to invoke truth if you know you're going to have an alternative to that thing that uh, Kendall himself is opposed to. So there's this tension in Kendall's thought. Um, equality in particular is one that obviously progressives and liberals have been very effective at co-opting and using to their benefit. This was already going on in Kendall's lifetime, and it's continued to be the case uh, up to today. I think it's very interesting, for example, that if you think of something like the campaign uh, to uh, nationalize and legalize and generally impose uh, same-sex marriage on the country, that this campaign was championed by organizations that usually use the term equality in their name, rather than uh, by organizations that claim that this was a demand of liberty or of something else. Um, so I think Kendall's right that equality is a very, you know, high, uh, very volatile, high voltage, uh, dangerous concept. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you can, uh, you know, sort of jettison it, and it doesn't mean that statesmen are wrong to talk about it. It just means that they have to be very careful in doing it. And I think Lincoln was more careful than Kendall tends to give him credit for. Mm -hmm. Kendall is sometimes, I think, mistakenly uh, and you know, uncharitably considered to be a uh, you know uh, admirer of John C. Calhoun or of you know a kind of a Confederate mentality. That's not true. I mean, Kendall really was very devoted to a Madisonian system of government. But I think it is the case that Kendall, you know, didn't quite strike the right balance between, uh, you know, what is transcendent and what is, you know, sort of universally true and uh, what is locally guided. That, you know, I think the best part of Kendall is when he's able to connect these things and the worst is when they tend to, you know, get into conflict. I'm glad you brought up statesmanship because in our reading of Kendall, um, we, we certainly found uh, there was a lack of attention to the role of a statesman at being able to sort of you know, guide the populace. And oftentimes statesmen have to invoke um, you know, principles that uh, are unpopular in order to um, you know, sort of you know, lead the populace uh, in the direction of the, the better angels uh, of their nature. Can you explain just kind of how a Lincolnian statesman is possible to you know, sort of have a role in, in, in Kendall's framework even if that statesman perhaps should be viewed in the same way that you know folks were, were suspicious of, of Barack Obama's uh, invocations of you know hope, change, equality, liberty. I I, I think of Clarence Thomas in one of his recent opinions, um, invoking that we use these words like liberty and and equality, but these words have different meanings to different people. And while you know that's not an argument for like moral relativism, it is very much an argument for someone like a statesman, uh, often pr our presidents, drilling down and being much more precise about what it is that I mean by, you know, liberty and equality. Because it's one thing to, you know, rhetorically invoke these values. It's another thing to say precisely what those, you know, uh, values mean in terms of justifying policy. Yeah, one of the things I think is very valuable about Kendall, and this comes through in the conservative affirmation, is that um, he often lays things out in uh, such a way, he, he creates you know, such a, a strong sense of some of the fundamental questions in politics, that even if Kendall is wrong in the evaluations he puts on things, um, he nonetheless has presented a clear enough picture and a, a true enough picture that you can modify what he has presented into a direction that um, helps you to uh, you know, put things right. 
So there is a chapter in the conservative affirmation called The Two Majorities, um, and this is a contrast between what he sees as the tendency of presidential elections to create something like a plebiscitary kind of majority, where it's just, you know, a, uh, a philosopher king, a philosopher president articulating, or not articulating, but just, you know, sort of broadcasting very vague uh, values and grandiose statements to a, you know, sort of uh, dis-aggregated uh, you know, mass of, uh, you know, disorganized, uh, you know, individuals, atomized people. So if you have this, you know, sort of one tutelary power and then you have this uh, sort of atomized mass that he's addressing, uh, that is one of the things that Kendall fears. And what Kendall wants to see instead is, um, you know, this, uh, you know, people, instead of being a disaggregated mass of individuals, he wants to see them organized in their, their localities and then through their organization to have discussion and deliberation of the transcendent, of the true, of the good, and that that will then, you know, sort of lead to better judgment at the local level and then filter on upwards. Now, um, so his uh, relative dearth of focus on statesmanship is, I think, a corollary to his focus on deliberation, because... At the local level? Uh, well, I mean, at the local level, he wants to have, you know, sort of leaders who do exhibit statesmanship. But uh, what I'm saying is that I think the uh, lack of appreciation that you get for statesmanship at the national level is a result of um, Kendall's focus on deliberation. So he, he basically, Kendall says that, uh, you know, he thinks the founding fathers, Madison in particular, envisioned sort of the grandees of, you know, the local congressional district. Uh, and these were, you know, more rural times, of course. But the grandees basically being uh, individuals of such prominence for their service to the community and their excellence, their moral excellence as leaders as well that the public will know them, you know, if not personally, at least know them by reputation. So your neighbors will say, oh, this James Madison person you may not have met personally, but he's the most outstanding individual, the most outstanding man within our community. Okay. So that's how Kendall thinks um, statesmanship at the local level will be discovered and promoted up to higher levels. And he does, he's, he's very skeptical of the idea of a, a statesmanship, uh, you know, at the higher level coming from uh, nationally on down. Now that said, uh, you can take the, uh, the picture that Kendall has created here and you can actually turn it around because there are times when the local community will be completely uh, misled, when it may go very far awry, it may select you know, the worst people instead of the best people to represent it, deliberation may break down, or you may even have deliberation that goes in the direction of injustice. Uh, and certainly James Madison was alive to this. Kendall is too. Kendall recognizes that Madison wanted to correct this through, you know, bringing everything together at the, the federal level. But, um, you know, one can take this alternative uh, mechanism that Kendall describes, where you actually do have a statesman at the national level articulating a direct vision of the good to a, a very wide public. Um, and you can say, wait a minute, this thing that Kendall dislikes but has described very well, it may actually have beneficent as well as malevolent applications. And so uh, I think Kendall is very useful even for people who recognize that there may be some deficiencies in his own uh, preferences, that in fact, uh, you know, you can to some degree use uh, this power of the presidency and of, uh, you know, I hesitate to say plebiscitary government, but certainly government that involves statesmanship leading a very large public. Uh, you can use that uh, to good as well as uh, to, to, to poor ends. And uh, so Kendall's right to warn us about the dangers of it. But I think, you know, we shouldn't, in being aware of the dangers, overlook the values and the virtues of this as well. So in light of the distrust that Kendall had about national deliberations, but also the ability for democratic um, majorities to be able to 
you know, articulate a vision of what popular self-rule means. Uh, I'm wondering if perhaps you've thought or if Kendall had any um, writings on what he thought the enactment of the 14th Amendment would do, um, because on the one hand, the 14th Amendment, of course, runs roughshod over um, you know, states and, and what they understand as uh, you know, their um, prerogatives within the police power, but the 14th Amendment also makes very clear that these are not to be done without congressional enactment. So I'm wondering if his understanding of the uh, abstract invocations of due process, equality, privileges and immunities, if these are the kinds of notions that he's very distrustful of, even when they are being deliberated upon by the Congress. Well, you've raised a very good point, which is that having that congressional uh, decision-making involved really does make a big difference for Wilmore Kendall. That said, uh, Kendall does see the uh, inclusion of rights in general within uh, the Constitution as being a derailment of the best tradition of America. So, and this applies not just to the 14th Amendment, but all the way back to the Bill of Rights. Uh, Kendall had reservations about the Bill of Rights. And uh, one of the things that comes through in the conservative affirmation is uh, this discussion of the balance between public orthodoxy on the one hand, which is uh, public orthodoxy being the truths that any kind of community needs to affirm uh, in order to maintain itself. Uh, so public orthodoxy is in tension with the idea of an absolute kind of free speech. Uh, because, you know, if you have free speech, uh, you may have people who start to question uh, and pull apart the public orthodoxy uh, and, you know, just make a, you know, kind of make a mockery of it. And uh, that's going to have, you know, very damaging consequences for your community, which will then shift from being based on its previous public orthodoxy to being based upon something else, which may be power or it may be a kind of sly new public orthodoxy that is kind of slid in uh, under the radar. Um, so Kendall, you know, wanted to keep uh, decision-making as political, as legislative as possible, and wanted to keep it out of the realm of uh, black-letter, uh, you know, of, 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 you know, sort of rights that are firmly enshrined in the Bill of Rights, the 14th Amendment, and so forth. Um, and here again, you know, Kendall was uh, resisting something that clearly had been uh, you know, not just a consequence of the Civil War, not just a consequence of slavery, but actually had been a concern of the Founding Fathers all the way back to the beginning. And uh, so there's a, you know, a, a certain conflict in Kendall's appreciation for the American founding, where he very much values, you know, part of it, but part of it he also finds as being um, uh, sort of dangerous and may uh, perhaps mislead us in the future. Kendall tries, I think, uh, in the uh, pages of the Conservative Affirmation, to spell out uh, the limitations of the First Amendment to show that you, know, you can still have a public orthodoxy. And in fact, the Founding Fathers expected to have a public orthodoxy, even though you have uh, you know, uh, strong uh, protections for uh, free speech right there in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but certainly, you know, Kendall uh, continued to have, I think, a high degree of skepticism and fear of uh, embedding rights and shrining rights uh, within the Constitution itself. I, I bring this up as well. I, I had uh, Randy Barnett and Evan Burnick's book on the original meaning of the 14th Amendment on my mind. Uh, and they proposed to actually um, have uh, greater um, deference being given to the Congress and their determinations of, of what the 14th Amendment um, requires. Whereas right now, our Supreme Court, as it understands, actually, I think, takes a, a more Kendall-friendly position, which is that... Uh, 
congressional legislation that seeks to tap into um, the Congress's, uh, you know, Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment power. Um, that over that 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 runs over, um, you know, uh, uh, the 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 more traditional understanding of uh, the states, um, uh, and so um, it's almost like the court is not as willing to allow the um, the fullest or what Barnett and, and Burnett claim is, is the most you know, plain, original meaning of the 14th Amendment, uh, to understand to be more bounded by um, you know, these understandings of you know, what, what are more you know, local determinations. And the reason I bring this up is because this debate has returned with force after the Dobbs decision, because there are some in the conservative movement that think that the Dobbs decision right, didn't go far enough at, at, at determining what do we mean by person under the 14th Amendment. Well. If the Fourteenth Amendment protects all persons, shouldn't uh, under equal protection, shouldn't that include unborn persons? Does that constitute um, an insular uh, minority that you know had been uh, heretofore um, you know the subject of uh, uh, unjust discrimination? And so you know those are the kinds of things that should the Congress be able to legislate on, um, uh, you would have to overcome that that strong presumption. And I think you know, th th these are the kinds of you know, qu you know questions that help us. I think better understand why uh, Kendall's writings, um, they may not be sort of like cited in the footnotes, but I, just, I, just, I get the sense they're in the background. They're, they're uh, in, in a sense, maybe they're, they're just like woven in with um, our understanding of uh, uh, self-rule. So. so in the conservative affirmation we talked about earlier, uh, Kendall frames the conservative liberal divide in terms of a war in which liberals are fighting for a liberal revolution and conservatives are trying to prevent that revolution. So it seems like conservatives under this view uh, would be defined by what they're against and not necessarily what they're for. Do you think that's an accurate way to describe uh, Kendall's position? Yeah, that's an accurate way to describe his view of conservatism. So he really does see, uh, I think, a parallel between what Edmund Burke was doing in trying to resist the French Revolution and, of course, the French Revolution's exponents within uh, Britain itself in the uh, 19th, sorry, 18th century. And uh, the liberal revolution that's happening in America today, conservatives need to be in the same position that Burke was in terms of resisting that uh, revolution. When it comes to what Kendall is for, uh, the, it's not that he doesn't have an answer, but his answer is a little more loose and vague than perhaps one would want. So uh, he says, you know, many times what he's for is the Federalist, uh, the Federalist Papers. He says what he's for is, uh, you know, a, uh, the great tradition, he uses that phrase, by which he means uh, the you know, classical tradition of philosophy coming down to us from Plato and Aristotle, combined with the Christian tradition of uh, the Middle Ages. Kendall was very much influenced by Leo Strauss. He very much believed in natural right. But Kendall also uh, was somewhat skeptical of uh, you know, sort of very highly developed articulations of natural right. So uh, you'll see that Kendall, you know, is, um, he's not exactly a natural law thinker. Um, he's someone who, uh, you know, has, uh, I think, uh, a certain wariness of codification of natural right into natural law. So he's not a Thomist, uh, but he does believe that you need to have this commitment to the transcendent. Uh, and, it, you know, and that commitment is going to be articulated. But he thinks that the articulation, I think, needs to be done, uh, you know, through a sort of ongoing process of discovery as opposed to being one where it can be kind of set down uh, once and for all by uh, a single grand philosopher. Uh, that's my impression of Kendall. And I think, um, you know, this too, 
even when where one doesn't necessarily agree with Kendall, he is raising some of these fundamental questions of exactly you know what we mean by having uh, you know a commitment to natural right, uh, what different forms that might take, uh, and these are questions that I think you know even today here in the 21st century, uh, conservatives need to be asking themselves more than ever. Um, so it, it's a very uh, valuable uh, line of inquiry, regardless of whether one agrees with the conclusions Kendall reaches. So there are contemporary criticisms uh, that mainstream conservatism is just a form of right liberalism, as opposed to something like post-liberalism. Uh, so what do you think Kendall's thoughts would be on that? Yeah, he rejected that. So the idea that uh, you know American conservatism is just right liberalism, there may be two forms of that argument. Uh, one of them would be an empirical form, which says that, well, you know, if you just look at what a lot of American conservatives have been defending, it's in fact just a form of liberalism. And nowadays you hear a number of conservatives uh, or former conservatives, ex-cons, uh, describe themselves explicitly as classical liberals. Can I get a list of conservatives that you would call an ex-con? Because I think that would be a really funny uh, top ten. Well, you know, I, I don't want to be ungenerous to people, but, you know, uh, folks like uh, Jonah Goldberg, who once had a very prominent position at National Review, National Review is, you know, sort of considered uh, certainly the longtime spokesperson or spokes institution of uh, conservatism. Jonah Goldberg is quite explicit now in defining himself as a classical liberal. Uh, you know, you've seen a lot of people over the last, uh, you know, uh, certainly the last five or ten years, uh, but even, you know, going back a bit further, of conservatives who wanted to, you know, say, well, I call myself a conservative, but really when you dig down beneath the surface, I'm a classical liberal. And, uh, and they define the American founding as a, as a expression of classical liberalism as well. I should add the humors and maybe seeing this list and each of them wearing an orange jumpsuit as, as an ex-con. <laughs> <laughs> not, not that they would, it, it's funny that they are no longer considering themselves conservatives. Maybe se on a completely separate line of, of inquiry, it's funny. Um, but but just, just this idea of uh, like disavowing conservatism, but then, you know, the reasons why, like, is it just because of Trump? Because... I think we see a lot of, you know, uh, Hadley likes to say, Trump was the light held to the retina. It revealed a lot of things lurking beneath that should have been apparent, but it took a, it took a figure or it took a, a movement or a moment um, to reveal them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I should, in, in, you know, in all charity, say that uh, not everyone that I'm thinking of has necessarily completely abandoned the word conservative, but they do still, even if they call themselves conservatives, also say that they identify as classical liberals and that really what they mean by conservative is classical liberalism. So I would say that those who criticize right liberalism are using the term correctly when they are applying it to people like this, who really do define themselves as classical liberals, and conservative is just a kind of misapplication which has become so conventional now that they don't want to give it up, but it really isn't a, an accurate description of them. But then there is uh, another uh, way of defining um, right liberalism, which is you know, saying that America had a liberal and only a liberal tradition right from the very beginning. And I think that's mistaken, and Wilmore Kendall is uh, you know, making a case against that interpretation uh, in the conservative affirmation and in others of his works. Uh, and he basically shows that uh, you know, what we identify as this you know, sort of nihilistic tendency and utilitarian tendency in modern liberalism, while there are precursors to it to be found in the, the, the uh, you know, founding period, uh, the founders, they generally had a much stronger connection to an appreciation for natural right and for the transcendent. And admittedly, you know, many of the founding fathers, many of the most famous names among the founding fathers, which is not necessarily 
to speak to the founding fathers as a whole. But someone like Jefferson, you know, is, um, if not, you know, strictly speaking, a, a deist in every respect, he is nonetheless someone who is not an Orthodox Christian of any kind. And uh, this is true of, of many other figures as well. Uh, and yet, you know, even those who were like Jefferson and who were very, uh, you know, skeptical of traditional Christianity, nonetheless, they still believe that actually you did have to have uh, you know, this transcendent uh, guiding, uh, you know, creator in order to have, you know, rights in, in the beginning and in order, to, and in order to have, you know, the fundamental, uh, you know, nature of human beings, which includes their equality, that can then lead to having, uh, you know, self-government in the first place. And here again, I think Kendall, you know, um, it would be interesting to have him sit down and talk about how he can, on the one hand, recognize the importance of, you know, equality under God as a contributing element to the very system of creating, you know, a, uh, uh, our government, uh, that, you know, you need to have that philosophical underpinning, while at the same time he's very critical of the idea of equality. I should mention, by the way, just briefly, one of the uh, important insights in the conservative affirmation is that Kendall draws a distinction between a social contract, which is a specifying contract, and a social contract, which is a creation ex nihilo. So um, the tendency that uh, Kendall perceives in modern social contract thought going back to Thomas Hobbes is the idea of a social contract that creates a society out of nothing, uh, including no pre-existing, um, you know, sort of transcendent truth. Uh, now, you know, there are people who have many sophisticated arguments about Hobbes and about Locke and others, uh, and, you know, where different thinkers fall onto this spectrum is uh, a matter of continuing contention. But Kendall saw both Hobbes and Locke as being fundamentally believers in the idea that the social contract creates uh, truths or creates artificial truths and really has no connection to a transcendent truth beyond the contract. Kendall said that the American founders, on the other hand, uh, he really thought that they had a uh, you know, devotion to the transcendent and they saw the uh, social uh, contract, the constitution, as being uh, something that just articulated you know, the pre-existing connection between uh, the public, between Americans and their creator. And Kendall, you know, it's in his other book, The Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition, uh, which was published posthumously, where Kendall spells this out. And basically Kendall says that going back all the way to the Mayflower Compact, you had a tradition of Americans coming together as a community, but recognizing that they're under God when they specify how it is they're going to organize their lives. So that was done uh, with the Mayflower, and uh, Kendall sees the Constitution as being a uh, continuation of that, and he sees uh, you know, the, uh, the Federalist Papers as being an explanation of it. Yeah, it just, it just strikes me that you know, what you just said should not be in as much tension with what Harry Jaffa and many of the you know, Straussians put forth as the, the basis for um, self-rule and um, you know, legitimate um, uh, you know, government. Um, but it, it, I think the difference is really that emphasis on moral truth and, 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 and the uh, arguments at the core of what we mean by natural right, because you know, Kendall sees the virtue in the deliberation, whereas I think you know, the Straussians will largely, largely argue that deliberation is at best a like, prudential concern. Really, it's, it's the coherence of the truth that is so in need of being distilled, and then a virtuous polity can be guided you know, towards the truth through various forms. Maybe it's deliberation, maybe it is the enlightened statesman. Um, but I, but I, you know, I just get the sense that Kendall, Kendall roots legitimacy far more um, in um, this process that I think 
is at once you know, uh, 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 reinforcing for you know democratic rule, but also I think leaves a lot more to whatever you want to call it, like, you know, the errors in deliberation. Well, I think you're uh, right to say that uh, the process of deliberation, uh, you know, occupies a very large place in uh, Kendall's thought. Now, I would disagree that uh, that indicates a disconnection from uh, concerns about uh, natural right and, uh, and truth. Um, and I think that it's a mistake to say that, you know, you're necessarily going to have better results coming from a single, you know, sort of uh, uh, statesman-like figure. And I say statesman-like figure because the statesman, you know, by, uh, certainly by the way we use the word, is usually thought to be a good thing. Statesmanship is, you know, just without any modification, you'd say statesmanship is good. Uh, but of course, there are people who are kind of anti-statesmen, people who take the qualities of the statesman and invert them. And they have many of the same attributes. I mean, just like an antiparticle in physics, they have many of the same attributes of a statesman in terms of how they operate. But of course, they're operating not to the uh, you know, furtherance of truth and the transcendent. They're operating to the furtherance of their own power. Um, so statesmanship you know, uh, can be dangerous, and deliberation can be dangerous. And again, you know, deliberation can also uh, be perverted and wind up being a kind of you know, antithesis of what uh, Kendall is envisioning as you know virtuous deliberation. I should say, by the way, the reason why Kendall has this phrase, uh, you know, constitutional morality, is that he says the deliberation has to take place with that constitutional morality present. Mm -hmm. So if, as long as that's part of the rule of uh, deliberation, you may have good results. The other thing is that Kendall says this deliberation has to take place under God, and he thinks, uh, and again, in, in his book, The Basic Symbols of the American Political Tradition, he emphasizes that very strongly, that if you take that out, if you say, we're going to have deliberation, but it's not under God, it's not under any higher law, it's not under the transcendent, then you, in fact, have something that's antithetical to Kendall's view, and he's very strong in rejecting that, and that's basically uh, his complaint about uh, the social contract, is that he thinks modern social contract thinkers really do have, uh, you know, for all that they may invoke a vague natural law or they may invoke uh, a deity of some kind that they're not serious about it, and they really mean a social construction that is based purely on deliberation. So Kendall rejects that. I think you're right that there is a very strong difference in emphasis between those who talk about statesmanship, you know, people like Harry Jaffa talking about Lincoln and uh, Wilmore Kendall talking about deliberation and, you know, the tradition of Madison. Uh, they're very strong different emphases, and yet I think they are both trying to deal with real problems that each side would have to recognize, and that there should be you know, a, a good faith conversation you know, between Jaffaites and Wilmore Kendall admirers, and that it would be very productive and healthy. And uh, you know, I, I think there is, you know, I, I mentioned earlier uh, Kendall's alcoholism, his tendency to break up with friends. Uh, and Jaffa, you know, uh, who was, uh, you know, didn't have those, uh, didn't have the, the alcoholism, certainly. Uh, but Jaffa also, you know, tended to state things in a very frank way, a very sharp way, which often, you know, created, uh, you know, um, a sense of injury among, you know, people who talked to him or people who were in disputes with him. And uh, I think those personality qualities have tended to exacerbate this sense of uh, enmity uh, between these different camps. And, uh, you know, I would just say, okay, maybe, you know, at the end of the day, you will find that enmity is justified. I don't find that to be the case. And uh, I would like people to at least hypothetically as a, you know, uh, you know as an attempt to, to see what sort of new thoughts we might be able to articulate about the old truths. Um, I'd like people at least hypothetically as a, you know, as a, as a test to try to bring together 
you know, the, the Kendall perspective and the Jaffa perspective and see whether they're able to inform one another and strengthen one another. What would you say Kendall has to teach what's broadly considered the new right and what has Kendall to, you know, to teach to the fusionist right? What Kendall has to teach the fusionist right is that um, they'd better be conscious of the limits of openness. Uh, there's a chapter in the conservative affirmation where Kendall is attacking the idea of the open society. This is not because Kendall wants to be, you know, some sort of uh, uh, micromanager of, you know, uh, speech rights and generally, you know, telling people what to think and what to say. On the contrary, there's, there's another essay in the conservative affirmation where Kendall says personally, you know, he'd be content to give someone like Gus Hall. Gus Hall was the uh, leader of the uh, Communist Party USA back in the 1950s. Actually, Gus Hall was in charge of it for a very long time. But uh, Kendall says, no, I, I, personally, I would be quite willing to have Gus Hall, you know, uh, say what he wants to say, come to campus and do all that. It's fine. But Kendall says that ultimately you have to be able to make a decision, that this is not a, you know, sort of claim that someone like Gus Hall is able to make in every context against, uh, you know, America or against a, you know, uh, a community where he's able to just come in any time and, and say what he wants to say then in fact the community gets to decide, America gets to decide, what the limits are of um, uh, expression and speech. Fusionists don't like that, but I think they should recognize that even if they want to be much more generous in how they would apply this, that they still have to draw lines as well. And uh, what we're seeing right now is that, and Kendall predicted this back in the 1960s, what we're seeing right now is that progressives and liberals who for a long time claimed that they were champions of free speech and of civil liberties have now turned around and they're in fact squelching speech and squelching civil liberties of conservatives. Kendall had recognized already in the 1960s that this was inevitably going to happen, that basically the relativism of, you know, sort of absolute free speech was just a tactic in order to destroy the old public orthodoxy of America, to clear the way for creating a new public orthodoxy, which is now being imposed on people. Fusionists, I think, are blind to all of this. They think that, you know, as long as you keep saying open society, as long as you keep saying, you know, absolute free speech or whatever, that, uh, that that's going to protect itself. And then, you know, I think fusionists have this kind of social Darwinian tendency where they think, well, in this scrum of ideas, the, the right side is always going to win. Well, of course, the, the, the wrong side is actually much more unscrupulous than the right side. And they're going to use debating tactics that are unfair. Mm -hmm. They're going to be, you know, uh, lowering the tone of discourse. They're going to be demonizing people. Uh, they will, in fact, what we see, <clears throat> what we see on our college campuses right now, uh, the, the wrong side will just shout down speakers. And if you say, well, I'm for absolute free speech, well, that could mean that someone on stage gets to say whatever they want, but absolute free speech would also mean anyone who's in the audience gets to say what they want and shout at the top of their lungs, and obviously that would completely destroy discourse. There's heckler's veto. Exactly. So, uh, so Kendall has you know, some reality lessons to teach uh, the uh, fusionists. What he has to teach the new right is basically that uh, there are strong precedents in American history and in American political thought for many of the tendencies that the new right themselves have, for some of the questions that they're asking about, for example, well, public orthodoxy, uh, you know, about, um, you know, and, and that the, you know, the new right is, is facing this difficult choice, which was alluded to in the earlier question, of how they look at the American founding and how they look at their own country. Uh, you know, there are some on the new right who uh, start to be very alienated, and they say, well, maybe America was so far wrong all the way at the, you know, at the days of the founding that therefore it's irredeemable, and you should, you know, think about, wouldn't it be better if we lived under the Roman Empire or something like that? 
And uh, that is, uh, you know, it's unrealistic, it's unpatriotic, it's unwholesome, it's, you know, unhealthy. And uh, Kendall is a, a, a cure for that because he shows actually, no, there is this authentic American tradition of conservatism, uh, which goes back, uh, again, he would point to the Mayflower Compact, he would point to the relationship between the transcendent and, you know, community that's able to organize itself. And when you connect those two things together, you have the American system. Well, once again, the book is The Conservative Affirmation, uh, a collection of Wilmore Kendall's uh, essays. And uh, Dan, this was just a real treat. And uh, I can tell you on behalf of both you know, Jacob uh, uh, and me, I mean, we, we learned a ton. And we're, we're grateful for your forward at framing um, these, uh, the, the, these essays um, from, from over, the, over the decades. Uh, the book is, I believe, available right now. Right now, that's correct. Uh, so definitely pick up a copy uh, for yourself. And uh, Christmas is right around the corner, so don't forget to buy uh, several copies for your conservative friends. Um, thank you so much, and uh, we'll, see you, we'll see you again soon. Thanks. Thanks. This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.